In the Reading Corner today, Sophie Kirtley joins me to talk about her second book, The Way to Impossible Island. We've got a lot to explore today, and I had to really restrain myself with the questions because there's enough here for a a two-and-a-half-hour conversation. So I bet it crack on and just welcome Sophie into the Reading Corner. Thank you, Nikki. I'm very excited to be here. So The Way to Impossible Island follows on from your previous novel, The Wild Way Home. What's the connection between the two? Well, both stories appeared almost simultaneously in my mind because the characters in The Way to Impossible Island are present in The Wild Way Home. But in The Wild Way Home, they're both newborn babies. So in The Way to Impossible Island, we meet Dara and Moth Girl properly as 12-year-old children, even though they did pre-exist in the previous book, and they were always there in my mind. And when I was writing my first book, The Wild Way Home, I was so curious about those two little newborn babies so full of potential, and I was very excited to just take their story on and find out what happened to them. Well, we're going to think a little bit about those two characters. Because you you start with Moth Girl, I'm going to start there. Tell us a little bit about her. She's, uh, I have to say your characters are both incredibly endearing and we really feel a lot for them. I, I, I loved them. And I, I love them too. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> That's to just say. as well. <laughs> but um, Moth Girl especially, I really feel for her because she's a, a Stone Age girl. Her time is the Mesolithic period. And as I imagined that time, I wondered about what different gender roles might have been assigned to both adults and children. And a lot of what we know about the Stone Age is very speculative and it's not guesswork, obviously, but it's almost putting clues together and making assumptions to some extent. So I imagined that there would be clear gender roles carved out at that time in history. And then I thought, gosh, here we have this girl being brought up in what's essentially a single parent family with just her dad and her big brother. And and I thought, goodness, she would have had an unconventional background. She would have had different influences and how would that have shaped her? So the moth girl we meet in The Way to Impossible Island is not what would have been a stereotypical Stone Age girl in my imagining of that time. She likes to hunt. She likes to do all the sort of manly tasks that would have been done at that time and in that um, and in that context. And she's also got a really special best friend who is a wolf called By My Side. And these two are just utterly inseparable. And I think once I started thinking about that wolf friend for her, the character really came alive because those two are such a duo and they're sort of dynamic together is really really important so I loved thinking about her both the way she's trapped by her society and the way she sort of pushes against the boundaries. We live in a time where science is advancing all the time and so we are learning more about the stone age than we knew in the past and even in the last year there have been these amazing discoveries that burials with hunting tackle are female And so she might be one of those. I think they estimate now that 60% of hunters might have been female. And I love the 
the flexibility of thinking. And I love that so many of these interpretations are coming from what's fine, what people were buried with and what mattered to people. Mm. And actually that just led, led me to remember why the wolf became so important within the story and to Moth Girl, because again, thinking about burial sites, um, I remember reading about a burial site where there was a young a young woman, a, a teenage girl who'd been buried and in her grave place there, there were the bones of a wolf and that was taken by archaeologists interpreted as being the sign of domestic animals, you know, um, animals being not just wild but taken into homes. And I really thought about that girl and the wolf and how they'd um, been buried together and that's where that story came from. You've got this fantastic wolf character. I love that he's called By My Side feels very credible as a wolf as well as being domesticated how did you get the wolfishness what lengths did you go to <laughs> I do love the wolf brother books just thinking about them I don't have a dog myself and I would quite like to have a dog so I think there's a bit of wish fulfillment going on and by my side but I was very conscious that I did grow up having dogs and I didn't want to just write a dog character and I kind of felt that that might be what I was slipping into so I did a bit of research at um, place a conservation centre near Bristol called the mm. Wild Place Project. And it's an absolutely amazing place. They have a whole area called Bear Wood, which is basically a recreation of what Stone Age and Bronze Age Britain would have been like with all the animals that would have been native to our country. And there they have a pack of wolves. And so I went and chatted to the the wolf keeper um, about wolf habits and watched them for a really long time on a very quiet, rainy Tuesday when there weren't any very many people around actually at the at the park. And I got loads of really amazing insights through chatting to Zoe about the wolves and um, how they behave both in captivity there, even though they had a massive sort of space to roam both within that context and then how they would be out um, in the wild. Obviously, you've got Vulture, Heart, Eel Boy, and they reflect their character to a certain degree. How does Moth Girl fit her name? Characters are given their name based on the first creature that they see and are seen by when they're born. So at the beginning of the first book, The Wild Way Home, we see the character Heart Boy, as he appears in the world, the first creature he sees is a deer, a heart. He's Heart Boy. Moth Girl, similarly, it's a moth, so she becomes Moth Girl. Then as she, as they grow older, I imagined at some point they would need to leave that girl slash boy suffix behind and they would just have to become moth or become heart or become whatever. And that would be a real sort of moment in coming of age. Then I thought, gosh, if they're given that name when they're born, almost lack of choice, then do they evolve to suit their name in the course of their life? Or is in, in the same way as the nature-nurture debate mm. where all of us, mm. you know, how would that actually work? And so I think that Moth Girl, in a way, when I imagined her as a newborn baby, there was a gentleness to, to Moth or just the idea of Moth. It's very funny how that kind of then turns into something quite fiery and quite intense as she grows mm -hmm. older. She almost pushes against her soft, mm -hmm. gentle name. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's not forget Dara. So he's the modern day 
boy in your story. Writing Dara, I find really difficult. And I couldn't quite put my finger on why. Moth Girl came to me very, very naturally. And the in the editing process, her bits barely changed. But Dara, I find difficult. And I'm really not sure why. So he is born as a very young baby with a heart condition. And that affects a lot of things as he's growing up. He has to have operations and he has to have quite a lot of medical interventions, medicine. And the thing that perhaps overshadows his life the most is the things he's not allowed to do. And as he grows older, he is awaiting a really big operation that is going to potentially allow him to do a lot of these things that previously he needs to avoid. That operation is very near the start of the book ends up being postponed to Dara's mind, cancelled. And that sudden shock is one of the things that really pushes him over the edge. Getting that vulnerability in him, but getting a balance between the vulnerability and his strength, his Mm. inner strength. Mm. And I think that took me a really long time to sort of capture. And, And also there were a lot of things that I thought, gosh, I, the the, the mum in me came out. Like, you really can't do that. You really shouldn't. So I find it hard to let him go and let him have adventures without almost, even as an author, mothering him and telling him to stop and behave more sensibly, please. So if we come to the, the setting of the story, Lathrin Island, I, I know from uh, reading other things that you've written that this is based on an island to some extent off northern the Northern Irish coast uh, called Rathlin Island. Neat little bit of swapping around of letters there. How much of it is based on that island and how much um, did you bring to that with your imagination? Lathrin Island slash Rathlin Island, <laughs> um, the real Rathlin Island, I really longed to go to as a girl. I was just very fascinated. So I grew up in Northern Ireland spent a lot of time on the north coast that was where I had my youngest years and I knew of this place and always wanted to go but I didn't actually go until really recently always something I wanted and I think that is something which is true to the book the fact that both characters for their own reasons really want to go to Lathrin Island it's almost a this real need real life Rathlin Island is is inhabited very much is Um, and so I want to stress that it's not um, exactly the same place. But in my story mind, I thought an uninhabited island just has such a lot of potential for adventure. So I made it uninhabited as a story creation. The geography of the island, I did take quite a few elements from. There are lots of caves there. And there are also lots of myths that um, are part of the, the culture of the island and the history of the island. So I took quite a few of those as well, or I made up my own ones where I want where I wanted to. Yeah, because you can do that. You're an author. <laughs> well, this is the lovely thing, and and that was partly why I wanted to change the name, but to do it subtly mm. because I didn't want. It's always the you don't want to have someone come around and say, "Oh, actually, no, that's that's, that's not right." You know, I had to make it clear that it was a, a made up place. Mm. Creatures that I refer to throughout the way to impossible island are actual real life inhabitants of rathlin island and it is a wonderful place for nature and for really extraordinary animals such as the golden hare which is 
a mythic slash real creature in Dara's reading and in Dara's mind, but is a real motivating factor for Dara in wanting to go to Lathran Island because seeing this golden hair um, is something he has always longed to do. Mm. And there actually are golden hairs on real life Rathlin Island. It's a strange sort of genetic um, modification, I guess, from being such an isolated habitat that the Irish brown hair, which is on all of Ireland, in this island has become this very rare, pale-furred, blue-eyed, golden hair. And there are a few of them, but only on Rathlin Island. I love that. Darwin would have loved that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so Dara actually has this almost like talisman, doesn't he, of the golden hair, which it forms an important part of the time slip element of the story. I just want to say, though, that in Moth Girl's time, this isn't an island. One of the things that astonished me when I was researching, and I kind of felt as an adult I ought to have known and considered, was the difference in sea levels between um, the prehistoric time that Moth Girl's from and um, Dara's time. And I just love that idea that at one point in time we could walk between places that are now covered in sea. At Moth Girl's um, moment in time, it's not Lathran Island at all, it's Lathran Mountain. And I thought that was something that children would really be fascinated by as well, just how geography changes through time as well as people and habits and all the rest of it. We spend about the first third of your story getting to know the characters individually. And uh, it's a dual narrative. It alternates between Moth Girl and Dara. And then we have the time slip moment. There are four chapters, really, that are written in a very pacey way. I was really just interested to know a little bit from you about your thought process in how you were going to handle the time slip element. I think when you're writing a time slip, there's almost two kinds of approaches. You can either be quite scientific about it and really think about the physics and the nitty gritty of dimensions and um, how it's all going to latch together. Or you can do it my way and suddenly you want the time slip to happen you know it's going to but you don't quite know how the two bits are going to meet in the middle or how it's going to work so the mechanics of time slips have distressed me and troubled me for years while I've been writing The Wish of Possible Island and The Wild Way Home simply because it's almost been secondary to the story itself in actually making it happen so again that was a bit of the book that was very edited and very played with over time to actually make it to make it happen in a way that felt plausible. But I never want the mechanism to demand attention for itself, because to my mind, it's almost something that if the characters knew it was going to happen, then it would almost pass the key over to the reader. Whereas I just want the transition to almost appear as if as if magic's happening before our eyes with a bit of sleight of hand. So that was my thinking. So I think that's probably why it's quite fast paced. I think that's probably why it almost merges. It's like the two worlds almost merge together. And I tried to use sort of quite sensory details to make that happen as well, like sounds. I know that there's, um, a, I want to say a curl you, but that's not the right word, a corn crate. Corn crate. Um, the sound yeah. of a corn crate, um, which is heard in 
both worlds. And I think these overlapping sounds make it feel like the worlds are merging in a sort of sensory way rather than in a mechanical way. And that's what I was aiming for anyway. I um, loved and that. The reader realises, hopefully, oh, this is what's happening, even if the characters don't. It's over this span of four chapters that really it emerges to the characters that that's what's happening. I, I just thought that was very interesting. And then in Moth Girl's world, there are these aurochs, which, of course, don't exist anymore. And then Dara sees a beast, which, as a reader, you're thinking is an aurochs at that point, aren't you? I mean, I just yeah. loved all of that. The way you played, you played us a little bit there. <laughs> Anyway, I think it would be really nice to hear a part of this story. It probably needs a little bit of setup because it's a little way on from the point that we're at here. The bit I was going to read is a chapter called Lighthouse. And in this chapter, like you say, it is a little um, way on. It's about halfway through. Dara and Mothgirl have met and they have realised that they both want the same thing for different reasons to get to what is now Lathrin Island. For Moth Girl, she wants to go there because she thinks her brother Hart is on the island. For Dara, he wants to go there because he always has and he's on a search for the golden hair. Dara also, because of his heart condition, has to take a lot of medication. He's taken a little bit of medication that he's just had prescribed that's enough to give him the strength to make this crossing across Lathrin Strait to the island. So Dara and Mothgirl have set off together on this really perilous sea journey. And where we join the story, they're still on their very small boat. They're at sea. It's the middle of the night and they're approaching Lathrin Island and they've just seen a light. So the chapter is called Lighthouse. Ow, said Dara, squirming his arm out of Mosca's too tight grip. He followed the line of her pointing finger to where the beam from the east lighthouse swept out like a searchlight across the dark waves. Why would Mosca's brother be out there in the lighthouse on Lathran Island? He couldn't be the lighthouse keeper. There hadn't been any lighthouse keepers at all since all the lighthouses were automated way back when. It didn't make sense. Are you sure your brother's out there? asked Dara, giving Muska a sideways glance. Lathrin Island's been uninhabited for about a hundred years. Heart lost, she said with certainty. Heart lost. I find heart. I bring heart home. She nodded like a full stop. Then Muska lifted the oar and began to paddle towards the island, steady and strong and sure. Dara sat on the boat bench and took careful little gasps of the wild sea air. But no matter how much he tried to convince himself otherwise, he could tell that the pink pill of power's power was gone now and his chest was starting to feel all locked and tight. He wriggled off his backpack, quickly found his inhaler, then closed his eyes and took a puff. (sighs) Better. He opened his eyes. Moscow was staring at him curiously, her head on one side. What? he said, embarrassed. Breath sick, she said with a sharp nod. (laughs) Thanks for the diagnosis, doctor, said Dara, rolling his eyes. Mothka rolled her own eyes back dramatically, then turned to face the island once more. 
Silently, Dara did his breathing exercises, relieved and pleased that his heart seemed to be okay again, for now anyway. He looked at his watch. He just needed to wait five hours and then he could take another pill. As long as he took it easy between now and the morning, he'd be fine. Dara counted in his head and as he counted, he gazed curiously at Mosca, at her black nailed fingers and at the five thin bracelets on her strong arms and at the animal skins she was wearing and at her bare feet and at her wild hair. Mosca, he asked softly. Where are you from? Where is home? Home, said Mosca, and she turned away from the island and pointed with the oar back across the silvery black sea. Dara stared where she pointed, all the way back to the mainland, to the moonlit twists of the river ban, and upstream, right to the farthest hilltop. Mandel! asked Dara in confusion, pointing to the distant orange street-lit glow of the town where he himself was from. You don't sound like you're from Mandel, Mosca. Are you sure Mandel is your home? Mosca had stopped paddling. She blinked back at Mandel, her eyes clouded and puzzled. Is home, she whispered, her head on one side, uncertain suddenly as she too stared at far-off Mandel is home and is not home. Home is trees. Home is creatures. Home is... She shook her head like she'd run out of words. Then she squinted her eyes into the distance and suddenly she grinned. Ha, she said like she'd won a battle. Ha, they're my spirit stone. <laughs> you not take my spirit stone, Daramurum. What? You're what? She jabbed the oar, pointing with it far into the distance to where the Lucasade orange street-like glow rose above Mandel. Ha, she said again in triumph. And Dara appeared where she pointed. There, clear as a shadow silhouetted by the neon sky, was the tall standing stone on top of the mound in Mandel Forest. The standing stone that was so ancient, people said it had been there since before Mandel was even a town, since... Dara turned and stared wide-eyed at Mosca. It was impossible, but as soon as he'd thought it, he knew it was true. You're, you're from the Stone Age, aren't you? whispered Dara. Mosca looked at him like he was totally stupid and totally crazy. You from Stone Age, she said with a toss of her head. Foolish Far Iceland's boy, she muttered under her breath. Dara's mouth went dry. How? What? How was it even possible? But it was. It actually was possible. It actually was real. He was here, in a boat, heading to Lathran Island with a real, live, actual Stone Age girl. It wasn't how he always pictured it. It wasn't how it was meant to be, but here he was. Dara grinned to himself in amazement. A wave slapped noisily into the side of Pea Green, splashing salt water into Dara's face. Never mind the standing stone, never mind the Stone Age, never mind who Mosca really was or what she was doing here. One thing for sure, they had to get to the other side of Lathrin Strait and land the boat safely. Let's go, he said, jubilant and ready. But as he turned, 
Dara saw something coming fast towards them that made him gasp in fear. A wall of sea mist, thick and white as milk. It swallowed them, swift and silent and strangely cold. Dara shuddered. He screwed up his eyes, peering hard, but all he could see was mist and the dim outline of the wild Stone Age girl. I'm not going to sort of take us too far into the end of the story because we want people to enjoy that bit of the adventure with Moth Girl and Dara. But there were some things I wanted to ask you about the writing um, of it. So we've already mentioned the time slip chapters written a little differently, perhaps to uh, the the other chapters in the book. And there's another part in the story where uh, Moth Girl is drowning. She can't really swim. And those chapters are written differently. They look different visually as well. Was that your idea? It was my idea. And it just sort of happened, I guess, because when I'm writing, I really imagine that I'm with the characters every step of the way. I find it hard to write a very long, drawn-out story where there are days or even hours or even minutes when I'm not in their company. So I felt very much under Moth Girl's skin at that point. And I wanted to sort of capture the the, the gaspingness and the upside downness and just how when she is in those moments when she is in incredible danger and is close to death and slipping away, I wanted the to feel the the brokenness of that almost within her and to reflect that on the page as well. I just felt it'd be quite um dramatic, I suppose, and it, it happened like that in a sort of gasping way. I've always written poetry and I'm very interested I read a lot of poetry for children and for adults and I'm interested in verse and I'm interested in form on the page even when a word is written in a way that's louder or quieter or you know I I really love playing with with text as well as with language and with shape of things so I think all of that came together in those sequences. Final question are we going to be having more stories that bring Stone Age and modern characters together? Maybe at some point, but at the moment, the book I'm working on isn't to do with the Stone Age at all. I think that at this point, it would be quite dangerous is maybe a dramatic way of putting it, but quite dangerous for me to keep writing what I know because and what I have been writing, because I feel I could just slip into doing that and then almost forget how to play and experiment and try different things. I just want to try to experiment with making some new worlds and some new characters and just doing something a little bit different. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Sophie. It's been lovely having you in the reading corner. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved every minute. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.